Well, I'd like to begin today by talking about distraction. Distraction. The fact is, is that many Americans find themselves increasingly distracted by life, especially in Los Angeles. We're being pulled in a hundred different directions and we're being pulled away from being present in our own lives. How are we distracted? Well, first, many people find themselves absent in their own lives. Technology has changed our world in such a way that we believe the illusion that we can be present everywhere. We think that the whole world is available to us for our our attention, giving us everything happening around us in real time. A screen check here, a screen check there, an email that demands a response. Uh, According to a recent study, Americans check their phones how many times a day, would you guess? Wrong. Higher. Anyone Anyone want to guess higher than 50? Did I I hear 8,000? No, lower than 8,000. So 85 times a day, people check their phones. Multiple studies show that uh, over half of smartphone users are glued to their screens for how many hours per day? Five. Five hours per day. Uh, and And that's almost a third of our waking life. Studies have shown all these things about smartphones. It keeps you up at night. It ruins the quality of your sleep. Uh, It causes distracted driving, which has caused a spike in uh, fatalities on the road. It even shows that it negatively impacts your work and your academic performance. Uh, But rather than living our own life, we get pulled into observing the lives of others. We feel compelled to notice things. We feel compelled to comment or like things that are happening around us uh, on the stories and lives of our friends. And, And if it's not our screens that we're glued to, it's our, uh, our thoughts that are dragging our attention in a multiple different ways. When we're at work, our minds are at home. And when we're at home, our minds are at work. But not only are we distracted in our own lives, absent in our own lives, we're absent in our relationships. We see our absence from our relationships affecting almost every segment of our culture. Think about it. We see children who have parents who are too busy working to raise them. We see teenagers who are left to take care of themselves by parents who are emotionally distant. We see marriages. We've all seen marriages with two lonely individuals who are just getting by, living in, living together under the same roof. And as people of Los Angeles, we regularly experience the mysterious thing where people flake out and not do what they say they're going to do. Some have argued that the fabric of our relationships is unraveling at an alarming rate. And even though we might not be able to explicitly name the problem, we can all feel a relational deficit growing between us and others. So we're absent in our own relationships, in our culture, but also we're absent in our faith. We're not only absent in our lives and relationships, but we're absent in our faith. And this sense of disconnection, it can bleed into our faith. You know, often we talk about God being absent in our lives. But what if we took real personal inventory? So I wonder if we are the ones who are absent from God. We see our absence from God when, you know, we attend a worship service uh, and uh, we pull out our phones during the sermon or uh, not anyone in this crowd, but like other churches, of course, you know, when we critique the music and compare it to like the latest worship trends that are happening other places, when we pop into a church or a church community or a community group so infrequently that we feel disconnected and we feel like a zombie when we go in because we're so irregular in how we're connected to people and to God through the, through the church or most, and probably most importantly, we forget to integrate 
what happens on the weekends in our everyday lives. Now, let me just say that what I'm telling you isn't anything new. In our culture, talking about distraction is very popular. I mean, just this last weekend, I was in a spin class. And I won't say where, but I'll say it's a very soul-enriching spin class. And I was on that right foot, and it was so good. And I just tapped it back, and everything was great. And so I was there, um, and the instructor repeatedly guided us to focus on the present. She said, forget, she invited us to leave all our worries at the door. She gave us examples like, you know, don't focus on your work or your relationships or your sex life. She wanted us to be present and attentive and focused on the moment. And, but, and, and so like what I'm saying here is that pretty much all aspects of American culture are as aware that we are increasingly distracted and we know distractions are bad and we all need to work on being more present. That information isn't new. So why are we still distracted? Why are we so distracted? If we're so aware, if there's so much good advice and opinions out there, if we all know that we need to stay focused on the present, what's going on here? Why does our culture continue to be disconnected, distracted, and unable to be present in the moment where we are with the people that we're supposed to be connected to, in the relationships we're supposed to be connected to, with a God we're supposed to serve? Why are we so disconnected? Well, over the past month, we've been doing a series here at Pacific City Church called The Good Life. And I believe, much like everybody else believes, that distraction is the enemy of the good life. And the good life is inseparable of a life of being present. I do not believe that our lack of presence in our lives and in the lives that we are committed to and our relationship with God, I don't think that's a secondary issue that we can skirt to the side. And if we ignore it, we may not have terrible lives, but we'll probably have mediocre lives. And the, the, the series has not been called the mediocre life. It's been called the good life for a reason. And so I believe there's options with all the options we have to avoid distraction and to be present. Our culture is still failing to look at an area, a major aspect of why we are distracted. And that is what I'd like to talk to you about today. So I've called today's talk, A Life of Presence. I'm going to pray and invite God's presence. Now, I just wanted to clarify, what do I mean by that? When I say, let's pray and invite God's presence, like, we already think that he's here, but I want to ask him to make us more aware of what he's doing in the room. So will you pray with me? God, uh, we invite you to be here. Um, You know, I prepared this talk, God, but you can lead this any way you want to go. And you can talk to people directly. And actually, you really don't even need me. And you don't need the worship band. You don't need any of this stuff, God. And so I ask that you do that. We welcome you here. We invite you to speak to our hearts and our minds. Lead me to speak in ways and help me to be connected to what you're trying to say. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at a story from the book of Luke, and it's a story about Jesus, and he was talking to Mary and Martha, and these two people are in Jesus's life, and so we learned a little bit about distraction. So if you want, you can follow along in Luke chapter 10, but if you can't follow along in Luke chapter 10, just follow on these two screens. We've provided it for you. It says in Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, it says, as Jesus 
and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So here in this story, we see that Jesus is a visitor in the home of Mary and Martha. And the text says that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that needed to be made. And she's so distracted, so much so, that she triangles Jesus against Mary. If you don't know what that is, I'll talk to you about it later. And it's a, and it, but what else is really going on here? Why is she triangling him? Why is she so distracted? Well, in the first century, in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is everything. So attached to Martha's anxiety, attached to Martha's distraction, are deeper issues regarding meeting others' expectations. Uh, her reputation in the community, her, the need to demonstrate that her home is worthy of Jesus's visit and the disciples and all these people. And it's not that Mary just needed to get up and help with the dishes. Something deeper is probably going on inside of the heart of Martha. Something that's, and the text even says that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that needed to be made. So where does this distraction come from? Why are people distracted? Why can't Martha just choose to be less distracted? Martha, knock it off. Just like come sit here and lay at Jesus' feet and we'll eat, you know, crackers or whatever they were going to do. And why does it have to be this way? Why can't she break away from what she has to do? Now, as I mentioned earlier, advice on how to be present in your life is really popular right now. Every spin instructor Every stay-at-home wannabe uh, mom influencer, uh, every person in between jobs just trying to make sense of what's going on. Everybody has ideas and opinions about how not to be distracted and how, on how to be present. And in preparation for this talk, I could have simply said, you know, Martha's wrong. Mary is right. Martha needs to be more like Mary. All she needs to do is stop being busy and pay attention to Jesus. And we'd all clap and go, yeah, this week I'm going to try to do better. I'm not going to be as distracted. But what I would be telling you, it would be fine, but I think we would be missing the point. The fact is that oftentimes we use distractions to not have to deal with what's really going on inside. And, to, and not to deal with what has happened to us in the past. Now, something we've been talking about recently is faith walking. I went through faith walking. My wife went through faith walking. Brady, who's not here today, Patrick, and a few others. We went through faith walking. And faith walking, you learn about something called anxiety. And there are two types of anxiety, according to faith walking. There's acute anxiety, and there's chronic anxiety. What is acute anxiety? Well, acute anxiety is, uh, it occurs when there's a real-time dated threat. Your child is in the street. Uh, your house is on fire. Your brain processes the threat in a nanosecond. You leap into action and you solve the problem. And then your brain eventually returns to a more normal state after the threat is removed. Now, chronic anxiety is very different than acute anxiety. Chronic anxiety is like background noise in our lives. It never really fully goes away, and it is connected to the vows we've made as a response to the bad things that we've experienced. 
and it sits below the surface uh, of our day-to-day in the subterranean levels of our heart. And now, I may be reading into the story of Martha a little bit, but it seems like Martha just isn't having an issue with acute anxiety. This isn't about Mary getting up and helping out. There's something else. It's a little bit more packed in here. Jesus seems to be putting his finger on the chronic anxiety, the background noise in Martha's life. And even if he's not doing that, even if I'm wrong, which I think, but, but I don't think I'm wrong. I think that he is putting his finger on some chronic anxiety there. We've all experienced other people. And I mean, I'm not talking about people in this room. I'm talking about other people, other people where the thing that they're stressed about, their thing that they're anxious about, the thing that they're distracted about really isn't the thing. Do you know what I mean? The thing is not the thing. This is like when you hear people that are like, you know, um, I don't know if a five-year-old has an ice cream cone and they drop the ice cream cone, they should cry. But like if you're an adult and you're out with your friends and you drop an ice cream cone and you start weeping... What is your friend going to say to you? They're going to go, girl, what's really going on here? And you're going to have to decide if you want to talk about that. And it's like when your spouse says the smallest thing, I say, oh, you know, I've had it with you. Not, not No married couples here, other married couples at other churches. But, you know, like, I've had it with you. And you're like, the thing is not the thing. And you would say, you know, hey, what's going on here? The, the thing is not the thing. Where is this coming from? There's something else packed into here. A little bit more. It's not just an ice cream cone. It's not just that the person cut you off in traffic. It's something else. So where does that chronic anxiety come from? Well, I'm going to provide you with a framework. And I'm going to put it up on the screen. Uh, It's something I learned from Faith Walking and a guy I know named Terry Wardle. He wrote a few really good books on inner healing. It not only explains the origin of chronic anxiety... It not only explains where some of the distractions you experience in your life come from, but it actually provides a framework for understanding why you don't do the things you want to do and why you end up doing the things you don't want to do. I may have said that backwards, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. It actually helps us to identify and to change the parts of our lives that affect us and affect others. So I got you into this talk by talking about distraction, but the framework, in in fact, can be very helpful for any part of your life. And so it goes a little something like this. There's a funnel, and at the top of that, you'll see something that says life situations. What is a life situation? A life situation is anything uh, that actually happens to you that you did not want to have happen. You uh, find you need to do the thing that you're supposed to do, but you spent six hours on the couch and you checked Instagram like a hundred different times and there's no new updates. It's that crazy thing where like, you know, you, you know, like you didn't want to do the thing that you did last night, but you went out and you did the thing that you didn't want to do. And you're like, why do I do that? Or like if you struggle with anger, you blew up at your boss or you blew up at a person that you love and you're like, why did, where did that come from? Why did that happen? Those are life situations in this model. These are the things that happen that we don't want to happen, but they sometimes do. Okay. But what usually happens is below that is something called dysfunctional behavior. Now, dysfunctional behavior, these are the slightly below the surface things that exist, the responses and the patterns of behavior 
that run contrary to all that God has for us. Such as, this is like, you know, say I've seen a pattern in your life, you rage uncontrollably. Or you're afraid, or you're depressed, or there's phobias, or distrust, or defensiveness, or an inability to be intimate, or receive criticism, or relational isolation, and high levels of anxiety or stress, or panic attacks, thoughts of suicide. These are some of the patterns of uh, dysfunctional behavior that come out that are below the surface of the life situations that we don't want to have in our lives. Do you understand where I am at so far? And connected to those things are something called coping mechanisms. Does anyone know what a coping mechanism is? Um, A coping mechanism are the things that we do to hide or mask pain and or anxiety. Okay, so this is where, uh, you know, it can be connected to distraction, but can be almost connected to anything else. So it's a performance thing. So workaholism, perfectionism, people pleasing. That's someone that can't say no to other people. The addiction of approval or a a, a chronic need to get attention, attention. This is where chemical abuse and drug abuse and alcohol abuse and sexual addiction and eating disorders. We have these things in our lives to cope with certain things that are going on below the surface, which I'm about to explain. And so these patterns develop in our lives, these dysfunctional behaviors. And then all of a sudden, boom. So we have these coping mechanisms and we have this like the things that we don't want to do, they end up affecting us and we see life situations like, uh, you know, an addiction to uh, drugs or alcohol results in a life situation where you're completely we're, uh, unhappy with how the thing happened last weekend or something. Am I making sense to you? Does this make sense? By, do I need to explain it any further? Nicole, how are we doing? Is this clear? All right, we're clear. All right, good. Because I want to make sure you get this. Now, these first two levels... These first two levels, life situations and dysfunctional behaviors, this is the, a majority of where uh, Christian churches uh, and counseling, not counselors that work here with us, but other counselors, this is where they deal with most of the stuff. They say, look, don't do that thing you did last weekend and uh, cut out all the bad behaviors. And what they focus on a lot of the times is behavior modification. Now, behavior modification isn't bad. I mean, it's pretty great to not do bad stuff, stuff that we're embarrassed about, but it doesn't deal with other things that are below the surface. Hey, Martha, stop running around. Change your behavior. Jesus is kind of uncool with what you're doing. Okay, I will stop. There's something else below that, and we know that. And so let's take a look at what those things are. Now, usually, most of the time below life situations and dysfunctional behavior, it's it's something called emotional upheaval. Emotional upheaval. The reason we have dysfunctional behavior is because we have emotions and we have feelings inside of us that are crippling us. And in fact, in some of these situations, people can't help the way they feel. All their emotions are just a response to something that has happened deep inside. We respond to these emotions by creating coping mechanisms because you can't just walk around being a blubbering mess all the time. You have to go to work. You have to go on that first date. You have to deal with the person you married. You have to stuff these things. And the coping mechanisms are designed to cram your emotions, but they're, they're popping up. They're upheaving, if you will, emotional upheaval. You have to do something with them. But these emotions that we're feeling, they're telling us something, something that's going on inside. What are our emotions responding to? And here's what I believe. Our emotions, when we're having these things, they are connected to lies and distortions. 
lies and distortions. These are the things that come into our minds that can cause us to believe lies or distortions from the truth. The truth about who we actually are, the truth about who God has made us to be. This is like the things like when we say we think we're worthless, when we say we're bad and that we'll never be any good. We think we're stupid. We think that nobody loves us. We think that we're ugly. We think that people don't like us. We think that we're damaged goods. We think that our parents hate us, that God hates us. Everything is bad. Everybody hates us. We believe these things that aren't true, but we still believe them. They're connected. So why can't we just like not believe those things? Let's just stop believing them. Well, the problem with believing, not believing those things, the reason they stick in our minds, lies and distortions stick in our hearts, the reason it causes so much emotion and it's so packed in, which results in dysfunctional behavior and life situations that we don't want to see happen in our lives is because of this, wounds. Things that have happened to us that we have actually experienced at the deepest levels of our life, things that we have done to ourselves, but also the things that have been done to us by others. The things that hurt, the things that were said, the things that were done, the things that you know it's just wrong, and it happened to you, and it happened to me. And you just don't know what to do with it. And from those wounds, we interpret what they are, and we say, well, I guess I must be this. When a dad says to a young girl, you're ugly and you're fat, what does that do to a kid? Well, I guess I'm ugly and I'm fat. And then what do you know? In order to deal with those emotions, you have to figure out what to do with them. You stuff them down, you cope, and that results in a hundred different things, which results in dysfunctional behavior and life situations that are really not good. You could run this in any different scenario, but I think, and here's the deal, and you may not want to hear this, the things that distract you, the decisions that you've made, And the the, the regrets you have from the decisions you've made in your life. The things that keep coming up in your life and you want to stop them, but you can't. All these things are usually the result and find their roots in this framework. We're distracted because what lays restlessly in our hearts is something that we've never dealt with and issues that are not resolved because of things that have been been done to us or we have done to ourselves. And we've tried to move on, and the reality of those experiences is actually still too great. Maybe we forgot some of the details, but the reality of those, I am right back there. I am right back in that moment. It still affects me every day, parts of my life. So let me tell you a story. And this is kind of my faith walking story. uh, And you can uh, just listen to it. Um, So, I mean, what were you going to do? Participate? Like, actually, you're telling that wrong. You don't know me. Uh, Anyway, so we're going to cut that part out of the talk. Uh, So so anyway, um, so I was raised, my parents came to faith. And some of you know my story. uh, uh, My parents came to faith right as they had me. And uh, the story goes that, like, my, growing up, my math wasn't very strong. So my, uh, my parents were married September 1st, 1979, and I was born December 28th, 1979. And I thought that I was the strongest premature baby that was ever born. <laughs> like, I, was, I came out of the womb at four months, like, oh, I'm 10 pounds. Um, I've gained weight since then. Anyway, so I... 
So growing up, I couldn't quite figure out the math on what was really going on. And so uh, as I got older, my parents this one day were showing me, um, you know, photos and videos of their wedding day. And what do you know? Uh, You know, my mom had a little bump uh, in her wedding gown. And they realized that my math was not good. And so they had to sit there and they go, Chris, we need to talk to you about something. You know, when we were going to get married... Um, we were planning on it and, um, we just want to let you know that like, we were pregnant with you before we were married. And that doesn't mean we never loved you, uh, or cared about you or wanted to have you, but we just thought we would say that to you. I go, okay. And I went outside and I played, but later on in middle school, that moment actually changed for me. I started to think through some of the harder times in my childhood. I started to think through the experiences that I had with my parents. And I started to believe a lie based on that thing that had happened. I started to run the scenario, you know, when my parents found out where they were pregnant with me, were they, were they happy or were they like, oh, no, this just ruins everything? Were they sad to have me? Am I the reason that they, you know, they were newly married, newly following Jesus? Am I the reason that was I inserted too early? Am I a mistake? And what I concluded was uh, somewhere in my middle school, high school brain that I was just a mistake. And my parents told me I wasn't a mistake, but they weren't planning on it. And I run the scenario in my head. And so you're a mistake. You're not even supposed to be here. You're a mistake, Chris. You don't even belong here. And so what did I do with that? I had to cope with it. I believe that I had all these emotions of feeling alone, not worthy, uh, like I'm not worthy of love. I'm not even supposed to be here after all. And so what did I do to cope with those things? I'll tell you what I did. I learned how to be funny so I didn't have to think about it. And I went after the attention of everyone around me. And you know what? I got pretty good at it. Now, you may not think I'm funny, but other rooms do. (laughs) And so... I, I went after it. and, it, but it still, you know, and it, the result was I was chasing after attention and I was, and that attention had to like manifest in different ways. And I had to go to greater to greater risks with, uh, certain kinds of things in my life in order to get what I felt like I needed. And it wasn't until later till I went to a course with Terry Wardle that, um, he, he actually said, you need to allow God into the pain of that moment. And uh, you need to allow God to do something new in you and heal what has happened to you. And it wasn't like he wanted to erase it, like it never happened. Your past is your past. You can't forget it. But God wanted to remove the emotional barriers that were in my heart that prevented me from seeing myself as I should. And I did that. I invited God to bring healing to me in this area of my life and, you know, it resulted, um, and, and I remember it clearly, uh, I was still dating Nikki and like, she quoted this verse to me and, um, it was Jeremiah one verses five. And, and it was before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born, I set you apart. And I know that like God was talking to Jeremiah about a specific group of people, but I felt in that moment, God used those verses to speak to me about, it doesn't matter what I think, 
of how I was born or the way I came into this world, there's a bigger plan going on for Chris Meekins. And God was welcoming me into that truth, that he loves me, that he is for me, and there's no amount of weirdness of all the hibbity-jibbity that comes from two people who are going to get married and making a baby. All that can be put aside because God had a plan for my life, and he was looking out for me. And it brought healing and wholeness into my life, and I instantly felt like a barrier and a, and a weight was lifted off of me. And I was like, wow, I can walk through life not feeling like I have to do certain things. And here's the deal. This may be objectionable to you, but I'm still funny. And I don't have to be funny in order to fit in. I don't have to do it to feel something. And I don't have to work at getting people's attention. I can do the things that God has made me to do because I was made to do it, not because I believe some lie that I'm a mistake. Amen? Does this make sense? And the truth is that that can be true for you too. Now, let me share a second story with you. Um, now, um, uh, my... My extended family, um, they've made personal choices that have uh, affected my immediate family, and they've affected me. And um, that's all I'm going to say about that. And, and so these choices that they've made, their personal choices, uh, made me very shamed, uh, and I just didn't have pride in, like, my family. And uh, somewhere along the line... So I, I was able to deal kind of with that internal thing about being a mistake. But somewhere along the line, I made a vow as, the res, as a result of some of the things my extended family had done and said and my shame. Like, I do not want to be like that. I made a vow along the way that was, I'm not going to be like them. I'm going to push bigger and harder and faster. And I'm going to be different. And I'm going to work in this area and this area. And I'm going to overcome. And I will not be like them. Now, what happens when you make a vow like that? Well, anytime anything goes wrong, this is how it played out for me. Anytime anything went wrong in me trying to achieve something, I immediately felt an unnecessary amount of anxiety and pressure because if I fail to deliver on that thing, then it would result in me becoming the thing that I feared the most and I would have violated my vow my vow that I would not become that thing. And so, what it, so what, what it did is it pushed me and pushed me to achieve one degree and then two degrees and then three degrees. And so like, yeah, I'm Dr. Meekins. And part of that was for, for what God was leading to me to do. But part of it's like, I can't be like that. I can't be like this part of my family. And so I, I was motivated by that. And so um, what happened in this, in this scenario is... Um, I was bringing this before God in a, in a class called Faith Walking. And we were looking at like, hey, this is kind of the thing that's stirring up that's deep within inside of me. And uh, that we brought it before God and uh, we were praying. And then one of the things that was said to me was like, you need to pray about this. And, um, and so I did. And I got a, actually a, a picture of two kinds of Chris's. And one picture was Chris on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And he was making deals happen. He had the phone and the jacket and everyone's like, rah, rah, rah. And there's a stock ticker and there's like some lady ringing the bell and in my mind and everything. I was just making things happen, making things happen, making things happen. And then I saw a second picture and it was Chris on the Pacific Ocean, on a, on a surfboard, on a glassy Pacific Ocean, just riding waves. 
just looking for waves and riding waves. And I felt like God spoke to me in that moment. And he said, Chris, I'm going to give you two options. You can either try to make things happen in your life, or you can ride the wave of what I'm doing in your life. And I, in that moment, I go, God, I confess, I don't want to make things happen in this church, in my marriage, in my friendships. God, I want to ride the wave of what you're doing. God, I know it takes an effort to get up on that wave. If I want to surf, I know that. But God, I'd rather just follow your momentum in the different areas of my life. I don't want to make things happen for myself. I don't want to be the master of my future. I want you to do it. I want your building of your momentum in my life to guide me. I feel like that's a much better way. And in that moment, he broke the power of that vow. And I'm telling you, I planted a church with a group of people in Los Angeles, and it was really difficult. And I went to sleep every single night. You understand that? That like, this was a difficult process and we're new and you know, we, we face challenges. People go through hard times. We're raising money. I mean, we're trying to become sustainable. We're trying to care about the homeless. We're trying to get people involved in dealing with the issues of their life and faith. Like, we're trying to do all these things. And I could be running around like a crazy person, like on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. But instead, instead, by believing that, that vow being broken, God came into my life and look, I sleep every night. That may bother you that I sleep every night, but it doesn't bother me because I'm sleeping sleeping at night. All right. And so, and so let me show you the rest of this chart. This is what it looks like. Instead of lies and after God brings healing to those wounds, those wounds are still there, but there, and there might be some scar tissue associated with it, but he brings new healing to the certain areas of your life. He takes the sting out of them and he starts to do something new. And the result of that is instead of lies and distortions, you have truth and acceptance. And instead of emotional upheaval, you have comfort and peace. And instead of dysfunctional behaviors and coping mechanisms, you have empowered living and at the top, you have healthy life situations. You have something that is healthier for your life and you don't end up doing the thing that you don't want to do. You don't end up being distracted the way you are, have been distracted. You don't rage out uh, at someone driving because you haven't dealt with the thing that's deep below, below the surface of your, in your life. Um, I just thought maybe I could share this with our time remaining. There's guiding principles. Here's mine. I mean, you have them too. And if you don't think you do, you're lying to yourself. So let me just share mine. Uh, One right here, it says, I will do whatever it takes and become whatever I need to become to receive the love I want and need and avoid becoming the thing I fear the most. That was my vow. I had to write it out. It was super painful. And I had to share it with other people. They were like, yeah, that sounds painful. And so then after that moment where I saw that vision of like two Chris's, um, The new guiding principle looked like this. I'm authentic when I'm with others. I speak the truth in love, and I say what I intend to mean with my family, friends, and in my work. I don't try to make things happen, especially on my own. I respond to the opportunities I believe that God is putting in front of me. One is just, I'm going to make this happen. The other is, you know, I believe that you love me, God. I believe that you're doing something in me. And God, I want people to tell my story in a way that shows that I trusted you and that I'm not like just scrambling after more money or more influence or like more of anything. 
I mean, this is what we talk about in The Good Life. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This is the difference between the, um, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the things we put on our resume. You started this company, and you raised this much money, and you did this. Well, they don't talk about that at your eulogy. The eulogy virtues are the things we talk about when we die. He was generous. He was kind. He was a good father. Like, he cared for people who were in front of him. And he also cared for them when they weren't around. He loved his wife. He was a respectful son. He cared about his mom and her old age. He tried to do the right thing when he could. These kinds of things, these kinds of virtues that come up, these are the things that we're going to pay attention to as we get older. And these are the kinds of things that only come in our lives when we root out and pull out the things that don't belong there. And so I don't, try to make things happen anymore. And I don't think you should either, but you know, that's my vow. But um, here's what I want to say. God desires to bring healing and wholeness uh, to your life. And in order to deal with the root uh, issue of distractedness, your anxiety and your detachment, you need to invite God into the pain of your past. And I know some of you, that's really uncomfortable because what she did to you it ain't right. And what he did to you, it's not cool. It's not only not cool, it's probably illegal. And some of the things, I shared a story about my parents weren't married, and then they, but I know in a room of this size, there's some real things that have happened to you. And I'm, I promise you, until you begin to look those in the face, and you say, God, what do you want to say about this? And I think it's really hard because, like, what if, you, what if you feel like he doesn't say anything or it doesn't come right away or you end up praying with someone here in the front or at a group and they don't say the right thing? Like, does God still want to do something? Absolutely. God wants to bring healing to every part of your life and help you have the right perspective on everything that has happened to you. And he wants to change you so much so and bring so much healing that it changes how you show up in the world. It changes how you relate to your spouse. It changes how you relate to your children, how you relate to your roommate if you're not married. It changes what you do at your work or in your career with your dreams, how you process, how you drive your car. Everything changes because you've dealt with the thing that's, that's been swimming below the surface. So um, how do we connect this to the uh, other things in our lives? Well, first, uh, a shout-out to our favorite, Eric Amos, uh, who's right here. Yeah, you can clap for him. He loves it. He secretly told me it's his favorite part of the Sunday when we clap for him. Yeah, it's part of his vow. Uh, so... <laughs> So anyway, um, that's why I know I'm going to say something about Eric. Uh, yeah. He offers inner healing opportunities for people. Like if you want to pray, say, God, like, let's take a look at this and see what happens. So that's one thing. A shout out to Christina bear. Where is she? She's over here. She's actually runs listen lab here. Yeah. Clap. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She, yeah. Part of her vows. She likes attention too. And no, that's kidding. I'm just joking. That's all me. That was a bad joke. I'm sorry. So anyway, she runs something called Listen Lab, and she's a licensed counselor. She helps process and help people work through things that they've, uh, they've experienced in their past. So these are two practical things that you can do. A third practical thing is the faith walking thing. We have a limited number of slots, but it addresses how your emotional maturity needs to match up with your spiritual maturity. What do I mean by that? Well, we know a lot of people that can memorize the whole Bible. They know a lot of scripture, but we also know that their kids hate them. 
<laughs> right? So there's sometimes a disconnect between like what we know about God and who we actually are as people. And so what faith walking seeks to do is like, hey, you know a lot of stuff. Let's line it up. Let's have our lives match up with what it is. And we look at a lot of the concepts that we've been um, that we've been talking about today. And that will be on March 1st and 2nd. And I will be in the back over there by that table. Uh, and I can sign you up if you want. Um, in closing, when we allow God to speak healing into our lives, we will be changed. We will have healthier relationships, not only with God, but with other people. We will be unstuck from the things that we are stuck in. And we can actually have an impact in our city. Now, our city is messed up. There's a lot of people that have experienced a lot of bad things. And I don't think you and I have any credibility to tell them what to do unless we've allowed God to work in us first. So let's get it right with us. If just this room could get it right, taking a look at the things that affect us, the pain in the past, all the things that affect us, that would actually be a better testimony than us not taking in what I said today and running out and telling people what to do. That doesn't work anymore. It never has. It never will. I know that Christians are getting less preachy, but the culture is still very preachy. Eat this, don't eat this, wear this, don't wear that. The culture is super moralistic and preachy, even if it has nothing to do with God. God. And what we want to do is say, look, we're not going to preach at you. We're actually going to change. We're going to allow God to transform us. So we become the people that we are meant to become. And we have the power to, yeah, you can clap. Sure. You know, you can stand up and testify. All right. So, you know, and so then, so we become the people we are supposed to become and have the impact that we're supposed to have. Let's start living it first and then see what God wants to do with the people around us. That's all I had to share with you. Why don't you stand with me?